Well, not long ago, I came across a very interesting book called Whistleblower by Allison Stanger. It was the fruition of seven years of research. The aim of her book is to show how whistleblowing has held powerful organizations in America accountable across the centuries. To clarify, a whistleblower is someone who reports waste, fraud, abuse, or corruption inside an organization. And sadly, whistleblowers often face very severe consequences for their actions. Take the case of Sharon Watkins, who in 2001 was the vice president at Enron, one of America's largest corporations. After reporting the rampant fraud that she had discovered, rather than being praised, she was fired and her reputation tarnished. Historically, blowing the whistle on someone much more powerful than you often costs a great deal. In fact, a legal expert in whistleblowing named John R. Phillips had this to say. If you look at the field of whistleblowers, you see a high degree of bankruptcies. You may find yourself unemployable, home foreclosures, divorce, suicide, and depression all go with this territory. And after talking with a friend, it occurred to me that in some sense, the early disciples might be considered a kind of whistleblower. A whistleblower in the sense that they, that they tried to testify to something that the religious authorities tried to cover up, namely the resurrection of Jesus and his empty tomb. You can see Matthew 28, 11 through 15 for more details about that. One of the foundational principles of whistleblowing is this. The more you have to lose, the more likely it is that what you're saying is actually true. And that was certainly the case with the disciples who had absolutely everything to lose and nothing to gain by testifying that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And friends, we're going to consider the resurrection of Jesus again this morning. We looked at it last week. We're going to look at it again today. Our scripture text comes from Galatians chapter 1 and 2. Please follow along in your Bible or in your worship guide. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born 
and who called me by his grace, was, ple was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. See if Cephas is Aramaic for Peter. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Galatians 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Verse 7. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Indeed, the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. Amen. Okay, the purpose of last week's Easter sermon was to demonstrate that the disciples of Jesus would not have believed he had been raised from the dead unless they had actually seen him and his resurrected body for themselves. They were by nature skeptical that Jesus had been raised from the dead because of the way they understood the Old Testament. Okay, that was my point. People in the first century weren't any more used to seeing resurrections than we are. But for many people, that's not persuasive because for them, the Gospels aren't reliable sources of historical information. Because how much can you trust so-called eyewitness accounts that were written between 30 and 60 years after the events occurred? That's a long time to have to remember things. And certainly long enough for things to get embellished and changed and grow into legend. Now I think there are thoughtful answers to all of those questions and concerns. But the reality is, we don't have to look at the Gospels to establish that it, is, that it is reasonable to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. And not only is it reasonable, I want to argue, based on what we're about to read, that the resurrection of Jesus best explains what the disciples were doing just a few years after his death. 
Because what we're about to read, unlike the Gospels, is not in dispute. Not even among secular, unbelieving scholars. In fact, according to one of the most esteemed, secular, non-Christian scholars of our time, the events recorded in Galatians 1 and 2 occurred with 99% certainty, meaning they are as certain as anything we can know historically. In other words, the meetings recorded in Galatians 1 and 2 are real history. They actually happened. Everyone agrees on this. And the best explanation for these meetings and the people they involve, as far as I'm concerned, is that Jesus of Nazareth was really and truly raised from the dead. Let me explain what I mean. Our scripture passages are from the book of Galatians. And Galatians is viewed by all experts and all scholars that I know of to be one of Paul's undisputed letters, which means that there is virtually no doubt that it was written by the Apostle Paul. We also know that Paul's letters are accurate from a geographical and historical point of view. Additionally, there's a consensus among scholars that Paul isn't lying. There's a consensus among even skeptical scholars that what Paul is reporting is true, that the events that he described and the places that he described with the people that they involve actually happened. In other words, Paul is telling the truth. So let's look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24, and this meeting that I keep talking about. Okay, we're going to start in verse 18 with the first few words of, the ver of verse 18. In Galatians 1, verse 18, Paul writes, Then, after three years, meaning three years after his conversion to Christianity. Okay, so he's date-stamping this for us. Three years after his conversion to Christianity, his conversion happened in about 36 A.D., making the events he's talking about here to have occurred in 39 A.D. Okay, making this meeting very, 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 very early. Amazingly early. Verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Again, that's Peter. And remained with him 15 days, okay? Verse 19. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I want you to notice what he emphasizes in verse 20. In verse 20, he writes, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Okay, friends, what we have here is a very devout and religious man making an oath before God Almighty that what he's writing is true, that the events he's describing actually happened. It doesn't get any more serious than that. 
And no scholar, again, that I know of thinks he's making this up. This meeting between uh, Paul and Peter in Jerusalem in 39 AD certainly happened. Which means that three years after his conversion to Christianity and within six years of the crucifixion, the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with Peter to get Peter's approval. Why did he need Peter's approval? Why was he going to meet with Peter? You see, Paul had been an incredible threat to the church. And so he needed Peter's uh, approval or sanction or imprimatur that his conversion was legitimate and he no longer posed a threat. Okay, James, the brother of Jesus, was also there. I want you to remember that. Okay, now let's look at the second meeting in Galatians chapter 2. I want to look at verses 1 and 9 of Galatians chapter 2 as it relates to the second meeting he describes. Galatians 2.1, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Go to verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And so what happens here is Paul describes a second trip to Jerusalem, a second meeting 14 years later that happened despite fierce persecution. Okay, after, after 14 years, after fierce persecution, church leadership was still going strong. And that's when the Apostle Paul met the Apostle John for the very first time. And so together, these passages, okay, these meetings establish at least four things, four very important things. One, that the Apostle Peter and John were historical people and leaders in the early church. Okay, it establishes that Peter and John weren't just made up characters in a story. They were real historical people. It's very important. Two, that James, the brother of Jesus, was a disciple. In other words, James worshipped his brother as the Messiah. That's why James was there. And that fact alone has huge implications. That, that fact alone should just, should just blow your mind. Because I don't know about you, but there's nothing my older brother could do, regardless of how much I love and revere him, to convince me that he's the Messiah. There's no way that I would be willing to submit myself to torture and persecution, testifying that he had been raised from the dead, unless it was true. Three, that Paul went from being an important member of the Jewish leadership who fiercely persecuted the church and was rapidly rising in Judaism. He went from that to being a Christian willing to risk his life and suffer the worst kinds of torture for Jesus to claim that God had raised 
Jesus from the dead. Four, in summary, these passages establish that Peter, James, John, and Paul all believed it was worth risking their lives to meet in Jerusalem to help the early church. In 1 Corinthians 15, which is another of Paul's undisputed letter, letters, Paul explains why. Okay? They had all seen Jesus. They had all borne eyewitness. Um, uh, they had all been eyewitnesses to his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. Paul writes, Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. He also appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he also appeared to me. Okay? That's what proved to them that Jesus had been raised from the dead, that he visibly, physically, bodily appeared to them. Okay? They believed this so much that they were willing to risk their lives in Jerusalem so quickly after it was claimed to have happened and for decades thereafter. Friends, these are the people who would have known that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead if he hadn't been raised from the dead. Okay, like, like in all of human history, these are the people who would have known that he hadn't been raised if he wasn't raised. Now, of course, scholars will rightly point out that all that this establishes is that these four men believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead and not that the resurrection had actually happened. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? Scholars agree that this establishes that these men were real and that, it, and that they actually believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but they argue that it doesn't prove that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so... What do they think happened? What's their explanation? You know, they don't think these men are liars. So what do they think happened? Well, at least in the cases of Peter and Paul, they think that independently of one another, they had a kind of psychological break with reality. A, a PTSD episode, if you will, that spawned a vision so real that they believed it was true. So real that they were willing to undergo the worst forms of torture to preach that Christ had been raised. Okay, so with Peter and Paul, they believe it was a PTSD-induced vision that they believed was real. In Peter's case, it was, it was, it was over guilt related to denying Jesus during his trials. And in Paul's case, it was over guilt related to persecuting Christians and a desire to receive the kind of forgiveness that Jesus offered. Other disciples, they think, had visions that were the result of, of a kind of psychological suggestion or group hallucination. This is not something that I'm just coming up with. These are the best explanations 
that secular scholarship has to offer. This is what they think actually happened. Okay? But the question is, is that the best explanation for what's going on in our text in these meetings? Okay? That Peter and Paul, independently of each other and at different times and circumstances, both experienced a PTSD-induced vision so real that they gave up everything for the rest of their lives? This would mean for 30 years they subjected themselves to the worst kinds of, of torture and poverty and deprivation, culminating with their public execution in Rome in the mid-60s AD? That's what these PTSD-induced visions did? And that the rest of the apostles also experienced psychologically suggested visions so real that they were willing to undergo the worst forms of tor torture to proclaim the resurrection? That's just not plausible to me. It's just not plausible to me. I think the best explanation is this. It's actually true. Okay? I think the best explanation, the thing that best explains what happened in the lives of all these men, independent of one another, what explains what they did for the rest of their lives was that they had borne witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ physically and bodily. Friends, meetings involving these people at this time in this place can be best explained by the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. That's what makes the most sense to me. To me, it takes far more faith to believe in these uh, independent group hallucination, PTSD-induced trauma. I think it takes way more faith to believe that than to believe the implications of our text that Jesus was raised from the dead. Of course, this doesn't answer every theological question, but it certainly answers the most important one. Jesus of Nazareth was actually raised from the dead and is therefore God Almighty. Friends, if you know nothing else in life, you need to know that. Now, there are times when all of us wonder, is this too good to be true? Am I kidding myself in believing this? Well, even Pilate, with Jesus standing before him, asked, what is truth? Well, friends, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth and the way and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through Him. Beloved, this day, I pray that you would know Him, the Lord Jesus, and the power and the truth and the love and the beauty and the reality of his resurrection from the dead. Amen and amen.